You've uh, probably heard of the uh, 50th anniversary of man landing on the moon. Slide. Thanks. Uh, this is the lunar module. Uh, 50 years ago, it landed on the moon. And it was only, uh, it's a very flimsy um, contraption, really. Uh, to, but it only had to come from the orbiting uh, sp the spaceship down to the moon and back again. Um, but it wasn't very, well, by our standards, it was very basic. Uh, the computer on this had trouble when it was coming into land. It uh, kept breaking down and uh, Neil Armstrong had to take over and manually land it. But it caused problems because he had to change the location and, and, in, and after a while they didn't know where they were. Uh, Australia, down here, uh, the Earth didn't know where they were on the moon, uh, which is a bit of a problem, uh, but they sorted that out finally. But one of the problems was the computer on that is not as much as my phone. My phone, in fact, the computer in my phone is 100,000 times more powerful than the computer on that. The computer in your automatic washing machine is more powerful than that, or your car. Now, can you imagine trusting your washing machine or car to take you to the moon and land you on the moon? I mean, we, but they did it. And what it tells us is that over the years, over the 50 years, hasn't technology improved? We've directly benefited from things like man landing on the moon. We directly benefit from that because technology has been pushed and pushed and pushed to be able to do more things in space, to do things better and better and better, and it's led to a whole lot of technological revolution, which today we benefit from, not just in phones. Um, we benefit from in uh, cars and computers at home, but even services that we use. Um, a lot of industry, most businesses are all running by computers. And we all benefit from that. Next one. When Neil Armstrong put his first step on the surface of the moon, it's the first time that man had ever stepped on the surface of the moon. And he said, that's one small step for man and one giant leap for mankind. When they were going to step on the moon's surface, they didn't know what it was like. There they, they was some theory around that you, know, you would sink into a quagmire and just, just go down. Now, they didn't know what it was like. Uh, they were a bit happy that at least the, uh, the lunar module was sitting on something solid, so that was okay, but they didn't know what it was like. They knew it was dusty because dust came up as they landed. They didn't know how deep it was. That was a big thing. That one step... The whole world at that time, anyone who accessed the TV or radio, uh, was watching what happened. In fact, put up your hand if you saw that happen 50 years ago. Yeah. I mean, if you're around, you, you, you were there. You knew it was going to happen. And you, you, no one was working. Everyone just stopped. You could have driven down the street. There was no one on the street. Everyone was finding a TV, and there weren't a lot around, finding a TV and watching it happen. It was a big, it was a momentous event. We're going to look today at Leviticus because Leviticus is an important time in the history of Israel. And we're going to see God teaching them something that's going to have a, a far-reaching effect even to us today because he's going to teach them about the constant need of forgiveness and we know that. It's the same today. We know that Jesus Christ dying on the cross takes the punishment for our sins. That cross behind me is a reminder of that. Jesus, dying on the cross, takes the punishment. In Leviticus, we see God calling for a sacrifice for sin. Sin is shown to be very serious and needs a costly personal sacrifice. 
And so Leviticus is giving us an understanding of the need for Jesus to offer himself on the cross for our sins. As John, one of the disciples, says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. He pays the price for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So Leviticus is giving background and framing and giving meaning to what Jesus Christ did on the cross. So let's have a look at it. First of all, Leviticus, uh, the nation of Israel uh, in Exodus 19 have come to Mount Sinai. God's given them the law and, and so forth through Moses. And they're going to camp there for a year. Until Numbers 10, they're going to move on. And while they're camped there for a year, God's uh, told them about the law, but he's also told them uh, about how they're to worship him, how they're to approach him. And when he gives them the law, the law is that we'll call the Torah. It's the law, the commandments, all the restrictions, the way they're to worship, the way they're to behave, the way they're to live their life as his people. He also tells them to build this, to build a tent of meeting. Uh, this tent of meeting, God gives specific instructions. Talk about detail. I mean, the exact size and what they're to make of things and where to put things and how they're to use things. It's all given by God. And they do it exactly to his description. Uh, the tent of meeting is uh, an area that's got a, a bit of a fence or a bit of a barrier around it. Um, you see in the front there's a bronze altar, then there's a bronze wash basin, and then there's this uh, holy place and the holy of holy, or most holy place inside of that. It's a bit like an ancient Near Eastern sort of tent-like structure, um, but it's important because this symbolises God with his people. It reminds them of Eden when they were cast out of God's presence and now God's going to be with his people. It's different today, isn't it? Because where does God live now? Where does God dwell? He dwells in us, his people. Not in the old church building, even though it's 178 years of age. He doesn't live over there. He lives in his people by his spirit. But this was important to the Israel nation because up to that point, God was wherever and now God has appeared on Mount Sinai and then they built this and they offered their sacrifices there and they've seen the glory of God there and, the, and there's been a cloud hovering over and there's a presence of God in this place. It's pretty scary to them because remember they've come out of Egypt, they've seen God do these plagues and destroy the nation of Egypt because they refused to, to honour God and let his people go. And then, then when they've fled, uh, they, they've seen the Red, the Red Sea parted, they've gone through in dry land and they've seen the, the uh, Egyptian army chasing them and the waters come over and kill them all. Then they've been in the wilderness without any food or water but then they've seen God uh, giving water coming out of rocks after Moses strikes the rock. Uh, they've got no food. God provides the manna to eat in the morning like bread and quails to eat in the evening. And they see a sovereign God who's, who's very interested in, and part of their life. And they're in awe and wonder of God. And there's a genuine fear of the Lord because they don't want to get on the wrong side of him. And so when he's given all these instructions about how they're to build this and how they're to operate this, they're really paying attention. The next one, 
this Holy of Holies, that tent-like structure, inside of that uh, there's a front part on the right-hand side where uh, the priest could come in with his sacrifices, but the second part is the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, where the ark was. And the high priest would only go in that second part once a year. After a week of sacrifices on the Day of Atonement, uh, he would then go in there, and we'll look at that in Exodus chapter 14, in about four weeks' time, we'll look at that. Uh, but it was all very carefully told how they to make it, the colour of it, and to, to put wood and gold and all this. And it was creating an ever-increasing awe of majesty as you went from outside to inside and into the uh, part on the left, the Holy of Holies. It was just an increasing awe of majesty. But in this whole setup, it was very clear there was not any material or any object that represented God. It was very clear. God stipulated that very strongly. None of these things are where God is or you don't worship these or you don't, you know, God is everywhere. But he wants them to approach him in a special way because the surrounding nations all limited their gods to some object or some thing. And they worship that or a place, they worship that. But God wouldn't have any part of that. Israel were God's people. He'd chosen them and they were to live in a distinct way that would separate them from the surrounding nations, a people belonging to God. And their separateness would be shown by their obedience to him. They're carefully obeying what he told them about his laws, about how they're to live, how they're to worship, about how they're to build this and how this is to operate by very carefully obeying that. And we're going to see that the worship system, the way of approaching God and responding to God, the divine king, was a sacrificial system. It was going to be costly for the worshippers. They had to offer perfect animals uh, they wouldn't be game to offer an inferior animal because they know that God would understand and God would punish them. They'd seen people struck down for doing things. So they know they had to give God their best, a perfect animal. It was different from the surrounding nations because uh, they had cults and they were trying to cultivate God's favour by offering sacrifices and even human sacrifices and children's sacrifices, pretty bizarre sort of stuff. But these people already had God's favour. They didn't have to try and get it. They just had to live according to the way he asked them to. And so the sacrifices were being offered for a different reason, a different result. Let's have a look at the sacrifices. In Leviticus chapter 4, in verse 13, If a holy Israelite community sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, even though the community is unaware of the matter, they are guilty. Now, I picked these out. There's quite a few. We'll look at those in a minute. And there's others you'll read in the book if you want to look at it. I picked this one out because this is different, isn't it? First of all, they're doing it unintentionally. It's the whole community. It's not one person. And, and it's done unintentionally, not deliberately. And, um, and even if they might be unaware of the matter, they're still guilty. Why well, I wanted to bring this out. This shows how serious sin is. You may not have done it but you may be part of the group it has. And you may have done, not intentionally done, it may just have happened, but you're in trouble because sin is serious. God looks at sin and he does not like it at all. And it needs to be dealt with. That's what it's saying. Leviticus is going to continue to show that 
um, we rebel against God because in Exodus, when they got all these, the Torah, all these laws, all these um, uh, requirements and ways to live according to God, uh, to be God's people, it showed something. The Torah showed that there was a rebellious streak in the people, that they couldn't do it. They weren't able to do it. Even if they set out to do it, they kept failing. It showed that there was a rebellious streak in every human being. Man struggles to obey God. Man struggles to, to submit to God. A King David will write in Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3, he'll say, The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there's anyone who understands, any who seek God. All have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. David sees from being the king of Israel and the great, one of the, the great king of Israel and God's chosen king. He sees in all people and even himself, he knows it's in himself, that no one is perfect before God. We all struggle. Paul will quote this verse when he writes to the Romans. And in Romans chapter 23, just after quoting this verse, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is serious and sin affects every human being. You, me, everyone. And sin is because we don't perfectly submit to God. And there's this rebellious part of us that, well, we just can't seem to do it. And we definitely need help with sin. And Leviticus is making us aware of sin, but also making us aware that something needs to be done and this something is going to be costly. Look what it says in verse 14 and 15. Well, 14, when you become aware of it, um, you're then to go, when you become aware of the sin they've committed, the assembly must bring a young bull as a sin offering and present it before the tent of meeting and the elders and community will lay their hands on the bull's head. Next slide. Thanks. You present, you're going to present a perfect bull. You don't present something that you know you don't want, you want to get rid of, it's you know, a crook bull. You present your stud animal, your best to God. And then the elders are going to come and put their hands on the bull's head and they're going to confess the sins of the community of the, the Israel nation or, or if it's a personal one or whoever it's for, they're going to confess that sin. And that sin is being passed over to that bull because there needs to be a sacrifice, there needs to be a death. Sin needs to be punished. It can't be ignored. And the bull's going to be killed and then the blood of the bull's going to be uh, put on the tent of meeting and it's going to be spread around. The next slide. It's going to be on the altar where they burn up the bull. They're going to put on the horns of the altar. They're going to put someone in the tent. Uh, and blood is important because the life of the animal's in the blood. And blood means that a life has been sacrificed for sin. And all this, all this messy stuff, all the stuff in Leviticus that goes over and over and over and over about sacrifices is pointing to one sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus. In Luke chapter 22, verse 20, at the Last Supper, Jesus takes the cup of wine and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And so Jesus points to that when he dies on the cross, when he gives his life, he's giving it as a sacrifice for sin so that we can all be forgiven. 
And we join in Jesus' sacrificial death, not by laying hands on him like they do with a bull, but we join in Jesus' sacrificial death by faith in him, by seeking forgiveness in him, by being joined to him, trusting and obeying him. Is how we're connected to Jesus' sacrifice for us and how we get the benefits of being forgiven. What we're seeing here is that the priest who's uh, going to be doing all this is going to uh, make atonement for them by uh, sacrificing this animal and they'll be forgiven. He's acting as a mediator between uh, the people and God. And we know that Jesus is ultimately our mediator. He's the one who's between us and God. He's the one who brings us to a right place to God because sin disrupts our relationship with God and also disrupts our relationships with each other because the sins, even though it's directed towards God, it often involves other people and threatens the covenant relationship we have with God. Next slide. This next slide just shows you some uh, things that... um, come up in this chapter about uh, sacrifices. There's someone. Anyway, it's on your sheet. Have a look on your sheet. It's on your sheet. Uh, it talks about unwitting and inverted sins for, by the high priest, the whole congregation, the tribal leaders, an ordinary person. They offer a goat or lamb for the ordinary person. If it's sins of omission, something you know you should do and you didn't do it, uh, you've got to sacrifice. And also for guilt offerings. There's just a whole stack of sacrifices in Leviticus. But they've all got the one thing. Sin is serious. It's costly to get it fixed up. It requires the death of something to sort it out. What does that mean to us today? We've moved on. And we've moved on like uh, that lunar module. You know, we don't just have computers that uh, can just do that job. We've got computers that, uh, you know, well, my phone, your phone, 100,000 times more powerful. And we just got it in our pocket. They have a great big thing on a, on a spaceship and now it's in our pocket. We've moved on. But we've also moved on as Christians, but the same problems there. Sin is still a problem. It will always be a problem. This side of heaven and being perfect, sin will always be a problem. And we need to keep recognising sin is serious to God. Unless we perfectly submit our lives to God, we constantly need to be forgiven. And that forgiveness is not going to be going out in the paddock, killing animals and having a big bonfire out there. I know some people like to do that, but that's not what we're doing. Sin is going to be coming to Jesus. And it doesn't have to be here. It, can be, it should be all the time coming to Jesus, who's the one who gives us forgiveness. And, and, and that sin has to be confessed. You know, we've got, to, we've got to come and recognise we've done the wrong thing and grieve our sin. Be unhappy with it. Be frustrated by it. Be annoyed with it. And ask forgiveness. And want to go away and change. And that's what repentance is all about. The good news in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We've just got to come repenting of our sins. We've got to come seeking the forgiveness that's only found in Jesus. We can't earn it. We can't deserve it. 
This church doesn't do it. I don't do it. No one can do it. Only Jesus can give you forgiveness. And then we're forgiven and we're right with God. So let's be a people who continue to recognise our sin, who continue to grieve it and confess it and seek the forgiveness in Jesus. And then let's be a people who rejoice that we're saved by Jesus. Celebrate the forgiveness we have in the new life that we continue to have in Jesus Christ and him alone. Let me pray. God, we thank you for what you've done for us in Jesus. We're the same people as those in the time of Leviticus. We're the same stubborn, rebellious people who fail to submit fully to you who sometimes are so focused on ourselves we just ignore you. Sometimes we even do things that we know you don't want us to do, but we do them anyway. Lord, we are people who sin. We thank you, Lord. We praise you for your sacrifice, the sending of your son Jesus, who was perfect in every way, submitting fully to you. And then, Jesus, that you would allow yourself to be put to death on the cross, knowing you had to take our punishment so that we could be forgiven. Thank you, Jesus, for your faithfulness. Thank you, God the Father, for your plan. Help us to be people who continue to recognize our sin, who continue to rely on Jesus and confess it, but people who celebrate the freedom that we now have in Jesus because we're forgiven. And help us to have that joy of being saved and going forward in offering our lives as thanksgiving to you, Father. We pray in your name. Amen.